Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, to give us perspective, Michael Holland, Holland and Company, always the Holland tradition to join John Farrell on Trafalgar Scare, that tree from Norway after World War II. They put it up every year. Holland is not in London with Farrell. He's stuck here in the United States. Michael Holland, how do corporations adapt to the reality of no travel, no globalization, and the constraints of this pandemic? Very well is is the quick answer to the the question, Tom. Uh, Throughout uh, throughout the uh, myriad of Zoom meetings I've attended and others have attended over the past nine, ten months, uh, the word seamless uh, has come up uh, with with, uh, uh, boring frequency. Uh, companies are adapting extremely well, and if you uh, uh, look at look at uh, the, the, the C suite, uh, I think uh, the, there are a lot of uh, quiet smiles there with respect to that. The answer to that question. Well, forgive me for cherry picking the data point, but there was a huge smile and scratching of the head and confusion over at DoorDash and Airbnb in the last couple of days. Michael, you've seen it all. Your take, please, on the IPOs this week. Human nature repeats itself, Jonathan. Uh, century after century, we've had these uh, what uh, you can broadly call blind pools, uh, the, the SPACs. So we've now got $80 billion, way huge record uh, in SPACs, which are, which are little slips of paper coming out. People get to uh, do all kinds of promote in the front end, as they've done for centuries, uh, make tons of money, uh, dribble it out to the public and screw the public. Michael Holland, I framed this earlier in the week, and it was actually a Michael Holland question, which is SPX up double digit this year now, SPX up over the decade double digit, SPX back to the early 1950s when you were an intern, double digit. Why do we keep talking about single digit stock returns? Because uh, institutional uh, uh, mindsets uh, have a way of uh, trying to protect their jobs, not looking silly, uh, saying things that scare their bosses. Uh, there's no there, there's no way to uh, look at, at the the craziness of the capital markets today, where we have 40 percent of the of the uh, European market owned uh, bond market owned by the central banks. So your risk free rates of return by which you you <clears throat> Judge stocks value right. is thrown out the window. You, you guys were talking earlier yep. about uh, throwing away the textbooks. Uh, you simply have to say, here's what we're dealt in terms of cards today, and there's nothing other than, than equities that one can look at if, you have, if you're a serious investor, meaning your own mm-hmm. 401k. I mean, Michael Hyde and John, this is so, so important about the idea of talking your book and recalibrating. Michael, we have to recalibrate to a measured ownership of Tesla. Everybody's underowned on Apple, et cetera, et cetera. What is the institutional adjustment at year end that you would expect to see? Oh, I, I think that, that uh, a lot of people who are heads of investment committees and institutional investment programs are, are going to look to, to, pry to try to protect their hides because um, the majority will have underperformed yet once again, continuing triumph of uh, hope over experience, as they say. And when you, when you have uh, 
uh, so you do a little bit more on the edges, which means that you probably get a little bit more buying uh, in terms of allocation because bonds make no sense in this Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland world. When you're talking about the craziness of the of the negative rates abroad and where where we may be going here with maybe going in the other direction on inflation, how how can you how can you justify buying a, a great deal of, of fixed income? You can't. Well, let's talk about it a little bit more. I think this is so important, Michael. You mentioned something about valuations. Valuations are only important to analyse if you benchmark them to something. In isolation, what does it mean? Going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, let's look at the US two-year. The two-year yield in early 2000 was almost 7%, Michael. Now, many people are looking at the price action of the last couple of days, the IPOs, and benchmarking it back to the crazy times of the late 90s and the early 2000s. Let's talk about where fixed income is right now compared to then, Michael. This is another world, isn't it? <laughs> it is truly an, well described, Jonathan. It, it's, it's another world. And Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland keep, keep, keep popping through, through uh, my mind when mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the, these kinds of crazy upside-down numbers. Uh, you simply have, if, if we are going to get, as, as I've heard uh, on Bloomberg uh, over the last few days uh, from some people, 2% uh, inflation is going to be in the rearview mirror. Maybe it's 3%. And then, and then you have uh, the 30-year Treasury at under 2%. You have a chance to lose an, a, a, an incredible amount of money in fixed income when uh, the, the duration spikes go against you. It's, it's really quite incredible. Michael Holland, we lost a great one. Robert Stovall. Tell us about Bob Stovall. Uh, he had this stentorian voice, a wonderful voice. Uh, his son Sam, has, who's on your show periodically, uh, has, has some of it. But he, he was one of a kind. He was one of the great uh, technical advisors at, at great uh, Wall Street lore. He would be laughing, at, as I do, at the, uh, the, the lack of uh, guidance from the markets as to how you're supposed to comport yourself in terms of saving people from losing money in the markets. And uh, today, yeah. I think uh, I think we we don't have enough of those kinds of people who have some some kind of uh, uh, de detachment from uh, the craziness around us. I mean, Michael Holland, you look at Martin Zweig and what he did in telling us to follow the Fed. To me, Bob Stovall literally taught us how to speak about the markets with that voice on the floor of the exchange. And you, you know, there were times on Wall Street Week where you guys just lit it up over the courage to be in the market. How do you stay in the market right now? Well, because there, there's a, a, a serious business, which is everyone's own personal accounts and, and how people or its foundations or charities who, who rely on these. So you, you first do no harm. And when first do no harm means you, you, you avoid things like uh, we were talking about for uh, DoorDash and, and, and Tesla and, and uh, Airbnb and uh, the, the craziness of the markets, the SPACs, uh, you, you identify those for people. And then you say, go to real businesses. There are businesses that uh, actually are going to pay dividends. It's a dividends. Can you imagine that? J.P. Morgan, you know, <laughs> yielding nearly 3% uh, when, when the 10-year uh, Treasury is yielding two-thirds of that uh, or, or less. Uh, and I, I think that you simply have to use common sense and, 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 and step in and say, we're not going to participate in this, this craziness. And when uh, John was asking earlier about people at the end of the year, what, what, what do they do? I, I think that uh, avoiding the craziness so you don't lose people a ton of money in the, in the coming couple of years, which, which you may well do if you step in the wrong direction.
We're all trying. Michael, you're one of a kind, and it's great to catch up with you, sir, and it's great to hear you sounding so well. Michael Holland of Holland & Company, thank you. We need to get back to first principles, and there's no one better on that than Francis Donald and dangerous Excel spreadsheets at Manulife, their global chief economist and head of keeping up with the data strategy. Francis, give us the update on the American economy this Q4, Q1, and into the 4th of July next year. It's not great. We are heading into a very soft patch, something that looks like a double dip on the services component of the economy. I agree with Bloomberg Economics. There is a better than likely chance that we see a negative print on the December payrolls. And what we're trying to figure out here is how do markets trade that? It's very possible the equity market looks right through. Maybe they have a little bit of a step back here as they focus on the longer term. But this is not a rates market that I think is going to shrug off a lot of the challenges that we see. And most importantly, this is not a Federal Reserve or any global central bank that is gonna shrug off the damage that's gonna be created in the economy in the next two to three months. This is not a period to look through. This is a period that carries higher potential for credit events, for long-term scarring, for right. further drops in the labor force participation rate. Forget about Fabozzi and all the fancy mathematics you know so well, Francis Donald. Talk about the emotion and the behavior if we get yields to break down. If the 10-year yield actually comes in back again to new low yields, maybe even talk of a negative 10-year yield. Who knows? I know where HSBC is on this. What's the societal impact of ever lower in new yields? I'm more concerned about the societal impact if we were to see a breakaway higher. This is everything I hear every day. Oh, rates are moving higher. There's too much inflation in the system. We should be more afraid of stagflation and painful inflation coming through and the Fed losing control of this yield curve than we should about low rates, which are necessary and more linked to fundamentals <clears throat> right now than a breakaway right. in the 10 years. And, and John, this is so important, as Francis always lays out so well, how wildly asymmetric the behavior is right now. John Farrell, everybody's in a panic about higher yield, and yet we observe on the Bloomberg new tests of lower rates. Which begs the question, Francis, where this expectation for higher inflation actually comes from, given your analysis of the economy and how it's going to materialize in the next 12 to 18 months. Well, in some ways, higher inflation is justified. And certainly heading into April of 2021, this is so important. We are going to hit inflation that perhaps comes as close as 3% with upside. A lot of that is math and base effects. It's the disruption in the goods-based economy. It's that weak USD. But that is not permanently higher inflation. And this is what we're missing right now. If inflation is not permanently at 3%, that bond market is not going to price in 3% inflation. We then come back to a period after that where inflation probably is around that boring old 2%. But most importantly, we are going to have areas of the economy that are experiencing painful high inflation good sector. And we're going to have other areas that are in painful deflation. This is not your father's inflation. This is huge asymmetry within price action. And we have to be really mindful of that. This is not boring 2%, everything at 2%. This is huge, huge dichotomies in what's happening in the price space. Well, this clearly isn't your grandfather's bond market either. So Francis, let's talk about that. Given everything you've just said, do we just need to recognize now that the position that central banks in are in right now will be the position central banks will be in 
for the foreseeable future. And I'm not just talking about the 22 that Christine Lagarde, the ECB president, was talking about yesterday. I'm thinking 23, 24, 5, 6, 7. Absolutely. I mean, my, my call is that interest rates have to stay extraordinarily low. And even if we do see a, a type of normalization, we're talking about 50 basis points, maybe 100 basis points. We are not going back to even pre-COVID levels of interest rates, even as inflation moves higher. Because <clears throat> even though I spend the bulk of my time looking at the Fed's primary mandate, inflation and employment, Listen to what the Fed is talking about on the sidelines, all global central banks, housing affordability from the New Zealand central bank. Mm -hmm. We're talking about things like climate change at the Bank of Canada. We're talking about Powell talking more and more, as he should, about racial and income inequalities. These are central banks that are shifting their perspective to a broader mandate than just inflation 2%. And they are <clears> going <throat> to be very happy to allow <clears throat> short-term overshoots and keep this economy right. running hot. So, Francis, let's go over to Secretary Yellen and the future of our stimulus in America. Take all that you've said and frame it into the amount of stimulus through this pandemic. Are you looking at it? Is $500 billion, $908 billion is OK? Are you looking at there will be tranches of trillion dollars of stimulus? Or like liberal economists, are you suggesting four, five or six trillion dollars of stimulus will be required? I am expecting persistent, continuous stimulus that does not have an end date or an end number. We are seeing a shift towards demanding a larger size of government. We're demanding that our government take over the reins of wow. central banking to address very large inequalities, to address the need to shift towards a greener economy. We are moving towards a government that will become a larger segment of the economy and for the market. It's incredibly important because you have monetary policy that says, I will I will anchor that front end for a long time and government policy <clears throat> that is probably primed for massive issuance. We are looking at a pretty sizable steepener here and we look forward post-COVID. And that shift from monetary policy as the main tinkerer of our economy to government is the really biggest, largest implication of what COVID did to our okay. economic system. Then bring it over to the chapter, I don't know, chapter 23 of your entry textbook, Francis Donald, years ago in economics. I believe it was on the equity markets. Fold again what you said over to how corporations will adapt to this and to the ultimate word, the profitability of our business environment. Well, I suspect we're going to be rewriting a lot of those textbooks, but let me let me put it from you from the investment side of the picture. You have extraordinarily low rates for a very long time, very cheap money. You are going to see larger and larger allocations towards equities. That doesn't mean it's a straight line higher. Right now, for example, sentiment extremely extended. We are totally primed for a bit of a pullback. That's going to happen. But more and more money into that equity market is what I suspect over that five-year that's why even though I sound like I'm bearish, I sound like I'm concerned, it's really hard not to have a bias towards risk assets over that five to 10 year horizon. There's just really no other choice. Well, that's why it's been torture on the psychological front for any investor, Francis. And we've repeatedly said this on this program. Your feelings about the world, about the world around you in the here and now, you have to park them and put them to one side. And I think, Francis, still people find that really, really difficult. They're looking at their moral compass and they seem to think the market should align with it. And Francis, I think still now, even after the lesson, the conditioning we've had through 2020, I think that's still difficult for many people. Can you walk me through the conversations you have with clients around those issues, Francis, and the lessons of 20 into 21 and beyond? 
Well, John, I actually have two titles. I'm a chief economist and I'm head of strategy. And in the past, that was the same job. If you thought inflation was going higher, you thought rates were going higher. If you were bullish on the economy, you were bullish on equities. What's been so challenging for people who have roles like mine in the past year is that we haven't just had to set aside our moral compass where our heart is watching lines to food banks that go around the block three times and say, that's not the trade. We've also had to set aside fundamentals and our economics analysis. When we say things like a negative print on December non-farm payrolls, that should be so bearish. And yet we have to think, you know what that means? It means lower interest rates and large asset managers, pension funds have to shift more into equities. Those are the connections that we're coming to. So this is no longer a situation where fundamentals are the primary driver. Does that come back? Maybe, but we really have to break out those correlations between a lot of the economic factors and the market. That's very uncomfortable. And like I said, we're going to probably have to rewrite some at least chapters in those textbooks. I think we've got to get rid of the books. Francis, great to catch up. As always, we appreciate your time. Francis Donald of Manulife Investment Management. One of the things that John Farrow and I agreed on long ago and far away, think March was we would speak to experts. That includes Sam Fazili of Bloomberg Intelligence, expert on pharmacology, the good work of Imperial College, Washington State, uh, University of Washington, I should say, and their microbiology. And then there's the math of it all. And right now, the math really, really matters. She's out of the acclaimed Kansas math program in biostatistics at Michigan. Leslie McClure joins us now from Drexel, truly expert on the mathiness of all of us. Over the weekend, you're going to get nailed, Dr. McClure, on this. What's the key mathematics of the vaccine that our audience needs to know? Ooh, that's a great question. So mathematically, what's important about the vaccine right now is the number of people and the number of doses of the vaccine. Okay, that's the size of the vaccine, and we're going to impute it onto society. What is the effect of what it seems to be maybe a statistically large body that says, I'm not going to take the vaccine? What is their impact on those brave enough like Pharaoh to get in line? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm in line. I'm, I'm, I'm putting my parents in line uh, before me. I think it's really important we all get in line. I think that as a public health professional, it's, a, it's contingent on us to get the messaging out, to tell people how important it is and, and to really educate the public about the vaccine and the benefits of it. It's, it's Professor, really, let's it's talk really, about the benefits we're going to have to convince and how we yes. harvest those benefits going forward. The question that we've asked so many times now is what size, what number of people, what percentage of the population do we need to reach before we can scale back restrictions? I've asked this question repeatedly and I get different answers and I wonder what yours would be, Professor. Do we need to just vaccinate the most at risk in society before we remove all of the restrictions around social distancing, etc.? Or do you need to achieve herd immunity to go forth and do that? That's a really difficult question because the assumptions you make to answer that differ depending on the day of the week. So, but my, my sort of stock answer is we can't remove those restrictions and we have to continue to be cautious even after we vaccinate a large proportion of the population as we learn more and more about the long-term uh, safety and efficacy of the vaccine. Just in terms of who needs to be vaccinated, we know the most at risk in society. Are we aware of the people who have already had COVID-19, whether they need to be vaccinated? So my understanding is that the, the, uh, the advice about that is mixed, that there's some saying that 
that uh, that those who have already had COVID-19 perhaps don't need to be vaccinated. Uh, but the recommendations, I believe, are that they should be vaccinated and that it will it will infer additional protection on them. Right. Leslie, where we want to get here, and you know this cold coming out of Michigan's prestigious program, is where Thomas Francis was in 1955. He's the guy that stood up and said polio will work, take the vaccine, where we got the 90 percent on the polio vaccination program. How long is it going to get us to take to get to April of 1955? Well, my... (laughs) We need to build a time machine, right, and be able to go back in time to a time when people trusted science more. And my hope is that we can get there. I I don't know how long it will take. Frankly, I don't know how long it will be until we have the capacity to vaccinate that larger proportion of the population. Uh, So, again, going back to the numbers game, we need to know we need more information about the timeline for wide distribution of the vaccine. Uh, My hope is that by the time we are in wide distribution, that the public will be more trusting and that more people will be willing to take the vaccine. Because you're right, we do need to get back there. I I mean, we got to get back there, but when are we comfortable again, just in your head, and I'm asking this as a complete amateur, when does Dr. McClure think we will be comfortable again in society at the end of this pandemic, when the Kansas City Chiefs can go out on the field comfortable that nobody's going to get the virus? When is it? So... My personal opinion is Please. that it will be at least another year before I wow. feel that comfort. Um, wow. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the I hope Chiefs go to the Super Bowl in February with no issues at all. Okay. But I don't think Professor, that Professor, we're so lucky to catch up with you today. Please come back, yeah. even if that was oh, a depressing end to this conversation. Professor Leslie McClure there of Drexel <laughs> University. John, there is S213. That is a fancy room at the Capitol. It's a reception room. Big and fancy things happen there. Edward Mills has spent a lot of time in S213 with Raymond James and a wonderful Washington policy analyst with true experience on the white marble at Capitol Hills. Ed Mills, what's going on right now in S213 and in those hallways around it? Forget about the media blather. What's the backstory of negotiations on Capitol Hill? Well, I think politics continue to get in the way, uh, Tom, of what we saw before the election. I think um, everyone that I talked to was saying that uh, they were not sure if Nancy Pelosi wanted to get a deal, uh, certainly did not want to give President Trump a victory before the election. Now that the election um, is behind us, um, we still have two races in Georgia. And most of the conversations I have is that Mitch McConnell now is the person who does not want um, to get a deal. And so we have a bipartisan group of senators uh, trying to advance a $900 billion package. Uh, We have a government funding deadline tonight, and we have an annual defense bill that's been passed every year since World War II that needs to get done before we can okay, call but it Ed Mills, in D.C. You can line up all the Senate majority leaders, Republican and Democrat have passed, and the fact that we need to pay for the Pentagon, we need to get a defense bill done, and on and on and on. What's original yep. about Mitch McConnell? Speak to Republicans, speak to Democrats. How and why is this guy different? Well, I mean, to his core, um, 
people look at Mitch McConnell and say his motivation is his desire to win above all else. Um, and he certainly um, wants to make sure that he wins these two races in Georgia to maintain his majority um, and is looking to see if he can set up a situation where a no deal on fiscal stimulus is uh, blamed on Democrats. Um, he is uh, currently uh, pushing hardest for liability releases. Um, a cynic would say that he is uh, doing the bidding of his donors. Um, but I think it is more about seeing a line in um, Georgia that if there is no bill, um, that that would be more negative to Democrats who now uh, will control the presidency and were kind of the focus of negotiations um, on fiscal relief. He has not been very involved in a lot of these fiscal relief negotiations. Uh, that has been what has been surprising to folks. He needs to be much more involved in these conversations before we can truly be optimistic about the prospect of getting the next round of uh, fiscal support for the economy. So, Ed, your base case right now, given everything you've just said, no deal until after January 5th? Um, you know, I, my, my base case is, uh, you know, that it's not a question of if, it's still a question of when and how much. Um, and I get a sense that um, Congress does not want to uh, adjourn uh, this year until something happens. But, you know, it's, it's hard to see um, how something kind of immediately comes uh, together unless people start um, taking hostage of the defense bill, of the government funding bill. We could have a brief government shutdown come midnight tonight. Uh, because we just don't have agreement. Wow. There, will, you know, there wasn't a sense that anyone wanted to hold uh, hostage uh, any of these must-pass bills before the election. Now that we're passed, everything is on the table. Ed, is there a sense of embarrassment, the prospect of the government shutting down tonight? Is there a sense of embarrassment at the fact that they just can't get anything done? Do you feel that? Do you sense that in D.C. at the moment? I don't think there is embarrassment. I think that there is um, you know, an acknowledgement that there are some really high-stakes negotiations going on, and each side is looking to find some leverage. Um, and, you know, D.C. usually only responds when there is a crisis, when there is a deadline. All of these fiscal relief packages have moved through other deadlines, have moved through other crises uh, without getting done. Um, and there is finally the sense that um, something has to happen and people are ramping up. And it's more of a um, political street fight than embarrassment at this point. Who, who applies pressure then on the senator from Kentucky? What power party moves Mr. McConnell to do what so many Americans desire? I think it's a combination of, um, yeah, kind of political shame coming from um, any kind of media coverage um, or getting uh, pushed by his individual members. Uh, having the bipartisan group is putting more pressure on him. Uh, last night, you know, it was an interesting situation where you have Bernie Sanders, one of the most liberal uh, yeah. Democrats, uh, Josh Hawley, one of the most conservative Republicans, on the floor together pushing for another round of fiscal support checks. Um, because they see their constituents suffering at this point. Uh, those type of events where it's not viewed as a one-party situation, but there is a bipartisan, very strange ideological mix uh, pushing for things. Uh, in the past, on these fights that seem intractable, 
the only thing that works in my mind has been shame. Ed Mills, great to catch up with you, sir. Joining us from Raymond James on a situation down in D.C. Bob Dylan uh, was someone who reinvented time and space two, three, four, five, six times. And just to give you one vignette with all of his acclaim in the Newport Folk Festival and that, he wandered on and then was dragged down to Nashville to record a set of albums. The engineer was a guy named Neil Wilburn. Bob Johnston uh, produced it. And what was extraordinary was one of his biggest hits off Nashville Skyline. Let's listen. Lay, lay, lay. Lay across my big brass bed. So there is Bob Dylan with one of the chameleon moments of his life where it was like, that's not Bob Dylan, but it was. I literally learned a bar chord off that song, which I think a few other people did as well. Alex Webb joins us now from Bloomberg on this sale for the wonderful Mr. Dylan of 300 million of his songwriting and publishing rights. Alex, how do you approach this? Did someone overpay? Does someone underpay? What's the journalistic thing you looked at? Well, there are two sides to this. There's Dylan himself, and then there's the buyer, which is universal music. And on the Dylan side, at risk of sounding a little bit cruel, but, you know, he's pushing 80. Is he going to be around long enough to make 300 million in royalties? Seems hard to believe. So for him, it seems a non-brainer. No-brainer, sell it for that money. If you're universal music, you could make the argument they've overpaid. You're forgetting that next, this time next year or sometime next year, they're expected to IPO. And if you're a right. company, you want to be able to demonstrate you've got uh, recurring income, predictable recurring income. Um, if this is a good slide on your IPO deck, then if that adds you know, percentage points to your value right. income listing then 300 million is money well spent. And of course, David Bowie, a pathbreaker here, folks. And, you know, he went on to doing all sorts of things. And what's so important is some of these transactions go cash on cash positive shockingly early, given hit success. And that, when I saw this deal, Alex, I said to myself, they're just going to spin off minority interests in Mr. Dylan's songs to every sovereign wealth fund and hedge fund out there. <laughs> do they do they line up at Universal and tranche this thing off to all sorts of people to take the risk away? No, I think what they do is they, I mean, Universal has got a very healthy cash position, I think. And um, I, the thing what they, they try to do yeah. is they get their huge roster of artists, everyone from, you know, Taylor Swift to, um, you know, Coldplay to to do covers, right? Okay, and can I rip? They're getting paid twice. Paul, can I rip up the script and Absolutely. be rude? Okay, come on, Alex. You know, we're two hipsters. Jack Atenoff is killing it this year with Taylor Swift recording a bunch of songs sitting around a pandemic living room over the digital. Is your world of records in the industry? I mean, is is Abbey Road or the recording studios in L.A., are, are they all blowing up because of what Taylor Swift and Jack Antonoff are doing? There's always a place for those because, you know, you do record stuff with orchestras. And there is something about the creativity that you do in this space, which I think is, you know, undeniable. And also, don't forget, you know, not all recording artists are rational. They want to be in this really? space, which is, you know, <laughs> done so much. And, you know, there's, of course, the, the, 
it is owned by Universal Music, Abbey Road Studios. It's a, it's a kind of trophy asset for them. Um, you know, they are um, pretty canny on their side, and I think quite strategic in what they is owned by Vivendi, of course, the French French media conglomerate. They would not be uh, you know holding on to those assets if they thought they could make money elsewhere. So, Alex, we have a little bit of a trend here. We've got uh, Stevie Nicks. Uh, she sold a majority of her catalog for, I think, $100 million, something along those lines. And uh, I follow David Crosby on Twitter. He's talking about doing it. What's driving these artists and some of these uh, you know, uh, you know, established artists with big catalogs from going this route? It's streaming. You know, it's Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, all those things. They have given a new lease of life to traps that otherwise, you know, ultimately, uh, from a from sales perspective, they're still making royalties from from um, radio players. But from sales perspective, they probably thought that the money had all been made already. You know, they sold albums 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Streaming has given them a new lease of life. It's given them, a, as I said, dependable recurring revenue stream. And so, first, you have that factor. Then there's also a few funds that have sprung up that are buying these assets up. There's one in the UK called Hypnosis. They own um, recently half of um, All I Want for Christmas, for instance, the Mariah Carey song, um, and uh, thousands of other tunes. Um, they think that they're going to be able to turn that into a sort of predictable annuity for investors by, by owning vast tracts of the kind of the great global songbook. I look, Alex, just one more comment here. We're going to run out of time <laughs> as well. Bob Dylan's a fossil, as you said. He's hitting 80 years old. Leonard Cohen, of course, we lost uh, again the same way. Is there going to be the publishing frenzy, frenzy for the young kids? I mean, is Lady Gaga going to get $500 million? I think it's unlikely because those guys, they want to be, you know, turning money over for the rest of their lives. You do see some younger artists doing it, but not so many. But if you're getting towards the end of your life, you get 70, I think it's 75 years from your death. That's when the copyright expires. And so you want to probably sell it before you die, because then you, you, it immediately becomes a depreciating asset. As long as you're still alive, you know, that could last a long time for everyone's going to buy it. And so you, there's that kind of sweet spot of when you can make a decent amount of money or what your, in, your sort of um, inheritors mm -hmm. can make maybe a bit less. This has been wonderful, Alex Webb. Thank you so much. Look forward to catching up with you in London when the uh, pandemic is over. Mr. Webb writing on the music of our times. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.